Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of As Yet Unexplained. Throughout the entirety of time, there have been mysterious and unexplainable deaths. Deaths that, because of the very absence of evidence and fact, have spawned many and varied theories regarding their reasoning. Tonight we explore two such cases. If you like what you hear, please consider liking, subscribing, or even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. As always, we like to remind the listener that within this podcast are unsettling descriptions, and you should be cautious if you find such things distressing. Also, with every story there are victims, so please spare a thought for those who have suffered. The Lead Masks When researching this story, I found that there were many different renditions of the tale. Although they are not too wildly different from each other, the additional material that is added to the core facts does seem to guide the listener in a certain direction when it comes to forming an opinion on the possible reasons for the events. I will lay out the events, and, when needed, I will endeavour to present as much of the alternative facts as they present themselves. As always, we cannot exclusively say the events took place as they are reported in various publications, and there is the possibility that some journalists have taken liberties with the facts, or drawn connections where there are none to be had. Using the available sources, we have put the events in a narrative so the listener can hear the tale unfold. On August the 17th, 1966, two electronics repairmen, Miguel José Viana and Manuel Piera de Cruz, from Campos dos Goitaqueses, left town saying they were going to buy work materials. It was also stated that a car was also on their shopping list. The pair allegedly said, according to a later witness, that they had the money for the vehicle which consisted of two or three hundred new cruzeros with them, which was never found. 
Miguel and Manuel took the 9am bus and arrived at Nuteroy at 14.30. Here they purchased waterproof coats and then stopped at a bar to get a bottle of mineral water. The woman that served them stated that Miguel looked very nervous and kept looking frequently at his watch. This was to be the last time anyone saw the pair alive. It had started to rain and as a consequence it got dark quicker than usual. From there the couple went straight to their final destination. Three days later, on the 20th of August 1966, Jorge da Costa Alve, an 18-year-old boy, although this is different in some accounts, climbed Morro de Vintem in Rio de Janeiro. Some sources state that he was flying a kite and stumbled upon the bodies of the two men, whereas other sources suggest that the boy had seen the men standing on the hill two days previous, and then saw him laying down the day after that. It was not until the third visit that he discovered that both men were dead. The terrified boy returned to his home where he alerted the police, who subsequently investigated. The police managed to ascertain the last known whereabouts of the two men, and found on and around their persons a collection of miscellaneous items that when culminated represented their last living moments. The two bodies were located beside each other and had already started to decompose and smell. When found, the corpses had a pink coloration about them. Both men were dressed in suits and laying on their backs, their bodies slightly covered by the brush on the hill. They were wearing the waterproof coats and there were no visible signs of any physical violence to their bodies or the surrounding environment. Situated next to the bodies, was the empty bottle of mineral water, two small towels, and a notebook. Perhaps the strangest element in the whole case is that beside the two men were two lead eye masks, although some sources state that the two corpses were in fact clad in the eye masks. The mask's construction was such that they had no holes in which to look out of. The look and feel of the material of the masks led some people to the conclusion that they simulated some protective eyewear similar to what someone would use to counter the effects of radiation. The police managed to identify the bodies by reviewing the documents that were found with them. When viewed, the notebook was to further complicate and mystify proceedings, as it contained an agenda with cryptic signs and numbers similar to encrypted messages. The book also contained a few notes in Portuguese. Translated, they read, 1630, to be at agreed place. 1830, swallow capsules. After effects, Protect metals, wait for mask signal. 
the money for the car that they claimed they were purchasing was never found. During the investigation, police toyed with the idea that a third individual could be involved, as the lack of money could point to robbery and murder, but this was dismissed due to lack of evidence. The presence of the suits may suggest that the men were intending to meet with someone. However, there is no way of knowing if this was the case or if the events actually happened. Also, the lead masks they were wearing suggests that the men were expecting some kind of radioactivity or extreme light to be present. One theory is that the two men were meeting someone for a secret deal involving radioactive material. However, no radiation was detected at the site, and this does not explain the strange enigmatic capsule that is mentioned, or the towels and jackets. Another theory that has been considered is that they were conducting some form of experiment, but there is no evidence of experimental equipment. The presence of the towels and coats indicate that the men were expecting moisture, but the items were purchased before there was any rain. Is it possible that the hill was not to be their final destination and they were conned for the money, murdered and left out there, although there was no evidence of violence or violent injuries? One of the first Western publications to cover the events was the Flying Saucer Review in their March to April 1967 issue. The investigator, Charles Bowen, penned the article The Mystery of the Morrow de Vintum. It is from this article that the next two connected events are taken. A humble garden in Campos is our first destination of interest. Although the article does not really elaborate on the details, but what we can extract from it is that the garden belonged to Manuel Pierre de Cruz, and within this garden, as witnessed by Elcio Gomes and Manuel's father, Manuel and his friend Miguel José Viana had built an unknown machine. Gomes later told reporters that the unknown machine had suddenly and violently exploded. Shortly after, at a beach in Atafona, in the state of Espirito, on June 13, 1966, buildings shook violently as a shockwave from an explosion tore through the surrounding city. Local newspapers reported that an equally mysterious experiment was performed on the beach which caused the explosion and subsequent fireball that was witnessed by many locals. One witness, a fisherman, told the press that he had personally observed a flying saucer fall into the turbulent sea after the explosion had occurred. What connects the beach and garden incidents? Miguel and Manuel were on that beach, according to Gomes, conducting yet another experiment. Gomes was a close friend of the two deceased men and was arrested by the police for making contradictory statements. Manuel's widow also stated that she witnessed an argument between Gomes and her husband 
shortly before the events. Gomes later revealed that he was invited by Miguel and Manuel to the beach where they witnessed a luminous object that came down over the shore. Five minutes later, when it began to rise, there was a blinding flash and an explosion which rocked the city of Campos and buildings far beyond. When inquiries were made, local fisherfolk testified that they had seen a flying saucer fall into the sea. It seems that once Gomes started talking, there was a torrent of information that he had to tell the publication Journal de Brazil. He stated that the two gentlemen were in fact scientific spiritualists and members of a secret society with secret unknown aims. He continued to state that Manuel and Miguel were trying to communicate with beings on the planet Mars and that their strange electronic equipment were the results of this enterprise. In the publication O Cruzeiro, dated September the 16th, it is stated that the remnants of the same lead that the masks were fashioned out of was present at the workshop of Miguel. A book on scientific spiritualism was also found with passages within that had been marked that referenced masks, luminosity and spirits. The publication also stated that Miguel's sister had also told the reporters that her brother had, before the Atofona explosion, told her that he would soon be carrying out an important mission and that it was a secret he could not tell anybody. He also apparently repeated this statement just before the day of his death. Within the article written in the Flying Saucer Review, it is stated by the writer that there could have possibly been another lead mask death back in 1962. The other victim was a TV technician named Hermes and his body was found on top of Morro de Cruzeiro, near Neves. It is said that his corpse was laying on his back with a lead mask beside it. At the same time, a statement was taken by Mrs. Gracinda Barbosa Cortino de Souza and her children, who were residents of the region. Gracinda was a society lady, and her family and herself claimed that they saw a flying saucer over Morro de Vintim on the 17th. She was traveling in a car with her family when they saw an oval-shaped object that had an orange color with fire around its edges. The family said it was firing out rays in all directions and was hanging over the top of the hill. They stopped for three or four minutes and watched the object as it rose from the hill and fell multiple times. When they got home, Gracinda told her husband of the sighting, who drove down to the area where the light was seen, but saw nothing. It wasn't long before the lead mask story broke in the press, and Senhora de Souza decided to keep the story of the bodies discovered on the hill away from his wife while he went to the police. The Journal de Brasil reported that certain details were given to the police that did not appear in their report to the public, as they were keeping certain aspects secret. These extra details that were provided by Gracinda when she was finally interviewed by the police seemed to corroborate and validate the authenticity of the sighting. 
Unfortunately, this case has been infected by a lot of subtle manipulation and misunderstanding. Could the two gentlemen have been part of a bigger extraterrestrial communication project or conned by a nefarious car salesman? Or were they simply murdered by Gomes? It appears that whichever avenue you wish to explore, you will find something that could back up your theory. That's the trouble with unexplained deaths. All evidence is finite, with many theories that could be explained by the tiniest grain of truth. Our second mysterious death is a more contemporary case, with science and knowledge firmly on hand to help solve it. But sometimes it doesn't matter how much knowledge and equipment one has, some things just cannot be explained. The Jameson Family I can't imagine him leaving her in the car at all. Leaving their coats in the car, their phones, the GPS, the cameras. It just doesn't make any sense why they would just get up and walk up the mountain without anything. It was October the 8th, 2009, when Bobby, Sherilyn, and their daughter Madison Jameson mysteriously disappeared. The family were from Oklahoma, USA, and it was reported at the time of their disappearance that they were considering the purchase of a 40-acre plot of land that was situated about 30 miles from their existing location. The family would eventually go on a trip to find their new home, but were reported missing by neighbours a few days later. After an initial search a few days after their disappearance, their locked truck was found in Latimer County, Oklahoma, a short distance south of the town of Kinta. The search efforts is one of the largest Oklahoma has ever had before. We had a thousand volunteers, over 13 dog teams. We used a plane, UAVs, helicopters. On investigation, it contained Bobby and Sherilyn's phones, IDs, their car keys, GPS, and $32,000 in cash, although the Jamesons were known for carrying large amounts of money around with them. The family dog, Maisie, was also locked within the car and suffering from malnutrition. It was indicated by the investigators that the family had probably not vanished of their own accord. The mountainous area was searched by the local police department, but nothing was found. It took us almost nine months to complete. Many miles were covered. It just wasn't inch by inch. It was impossible because of the mountains, the trees, the vegetation. In November 2013, a local hunter stumbled across the skeletal remains of two adults and a child laying side by side and face down in the ground of a remote spot. On the 3rd of July 2014, an Oklahoma medical official declared that anthropological and forensic pathological testing had proved that the remains were that of the Jameson family. A cause of death was not determined due to the heavily decomposed state of the bodies. The bodies were found less than three miles from where the truck was found. As with all unexplained incidents, many theories emerged to try and explain the unexplainable. 
Some of the theories that were mentioned were that they had faked their own deaths, were initiated into some witness protection program, had been murdered or been involved in some kind of cult suicide. It has also been noted that prior to their disappearance, the couple were engaged in several incidents that could be connected or at least paved the way towards their disappearance. For example, the drug theory, whereby it is noted that Bobby and Sherilyn were thin and emaciated just before they went missing, leading to the theory that the couple were hooked on the drug crystal meth. Additional events have spawned more varied theories. The couple were recorded on a security camera loading up their car the day before they left. It took them an extremely long time to load the truck. They made 30, 40 trips, it seemed like. They changed clothes several times. They would walk the boxes to the car, then back to the house, and back again. It's a little hard to determine on the footage, but it has been stated that these are the same boxes being transported back and forth, and that the couple are in a trance-like state. Sherilyn's mum, Connie Kokotan, had a few ideas on the disappearance and attributes the deaths to the family joining a religious cult. She stated in an interview that, just like I've said from the very beginning, I think somebody killed them. There's just no way that Bobby and Sherilyn would ever let anything happen to Madison unless something had been done to them. It was reported by friends and family that the couple were very paranoid in the months before their disappearance. They were complaining to their friends, family and reportedly told their pastor on separate occasions of ghostly visions and hauntings in their home. Pastor Gary Brandon stated to police investigators that Bobby had gone to him and told him that he saw two to four spirits on the roof of their home. And independently, Sherilyn told Pastor Brandon she and Madison had seen the spirits inside the house. Sherilyn also believed that she had the power to exorcise the demons. She knew things about witchcraft. Sherilyn and Bobby believed that uh, there were spirits in, in their house, and it frightened them. Brandon also stated that Bobby had also offered up the information that he had a satanic Bible. The presence of the $32,000 that was found in the car also points to drug activity, but could also have been the deposit or payment for the aforementioned property, which is why the Jamesons were on that fateful trip. However, it was widely known that they were struggling financially so the presence of that amount of money in the car remains a mystery. It is worth noting that when investigating their property, the police found no evidence of drug taking or illegal substances. Sherilyn's mother stated that they were having financial trouble. Bobby told Sherilyn, I know where I can get the money, but I won't involve you. But if they were involved in drugs, I never saw any. Kokotan did stay with the family between March and June of that year. Before the disappearance, Bobby was involved in a lawsuit with his own father, Bob Dean Jameson, whereby Bobby had claimed that his father threatened the family and struck him with his car. 
Bobby also stated that his father was involved in meth and gangs. Investigating police did not believe that his father was involved in the family's disappearance. Both Bobby and Sherilyn were sufferers of extreme depression throughout the entirety of their life, and a long, hateful letter was found within the locked car from Sherilyn to Bobby. I will say that there was problems. That, in the very beginning, gave us a lot of concern. But this was apparently common between the couple. They did have some disagreements on things, but, you know, all marriages do. I don't think she meant all those things. Kokatan described her daughter as suffering from bipolar and that Bobby lived with constant back pain, which he received from an automobile accident in 2003. Sherilyn was a very strong-willed person, but I saw her change dramatically, Kokatan stated in an interview. She became very illogical. Sherilyn was in possession of a handgun, which was missing from the car. Is it possible that Sherilyn could have walked her family three miles into the remote area to kill them, and then commit suicide? The truck was left abandoned, as if the family were in a hurry. This was evidenced as they left many essential items behind, including their dog. The area is also known for being a haven for drug activity and users. When Israel Bouchon, Latimer County Sheriff, and the police looked into the case as a whole, the picture they started to form regarding the family was that they were scammers. Bouchon said, both adults had been receiving disability checks. They were plaintiffs in at least two civil lawsuits, including one against Bobby Jameson's father, Bobby Dean Jameson. Bouchard continued to state that they were told that the family were also planning to sue the Eufala School District over what I have no idea, Bouchard stated. Another theory that has surfaced is that a former border and white supremacist had killed the family. A handyman had once rented a room within the Jameson home, but clashed with Sherilyn. Apparently, the tenant muttered racial slurs and talked about white supremacy until Sherilyn ordered him off the property at gunpoint. He had the barrel stuck in his ear by Sherilyn, Bouchard said. They had some words about it, and she started to get scared and made him leave at gunpoint. He was actually in jail during the times that they had went missing. The theory extends to say that police found a pill bottle with his name in the truck amongst the empty containers. At first you think, great, here's someone with a motive. But the FBI cleared him, said Bouchard. The police who were involved and were close to the family believed that they were murdered, as the skull of Bobby was found with a large, unexplainable hole in it. Is it possible that this was either the entry or exit wound of a bullet? Although many years have passed, and unless new evidence surfaces, no further light can be shed on the strange deaths of Miguel José Viana, Manuel Piera da Cruz, and the Jameson family. They will forever be open to theories and interpretations.
Links to our Facebook page and email address are in our bio. So feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing, and even suggest future episodes that we can cover. Next week, we will be looking at the strange encounters with the living blobs. Thanks for listening. If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings, Time slips, cryptids, cults, and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by Torch and Moonlight. Go to occultariaofalbion.com or search Occultaria of Albion wherever you find your favourite podcasts. End transmission. <laughs>